Welcome to Pediagogy. I'm Tammy. And I'm Lydia. And we're UC Davis Children's Hospital trained pediatricians in Sacramento. This podcast reviews common conditions in children to enhance our knowledge and the knowledge of other residents, medical students, and any other interested learners. With that, let's delve right into this episode. We have an eight-month-old baby with a fever up to 102 degrees Fahrenheit for the past two days with some fussiness. Baby's eating and peeing okay, doesn't have any other localizing symptoms like runny nose, vomiting, or diarrhea, and no other sick contacts. Besides the fever, the vitals are stable and your exam is unremarkable. What are you going to do next? Well, assuming it's still COVID times, I get a COVID and flu swab, and then I check the urine for a UTI or a urinary tract infection. Great. So in this case, the COVID and flu are negative, and the parents allow you to get an in-and-out calf specimen that shows greater than 10 white blood cells per high-power field, many bacteria, and positive leukosterases, as well as positive nitrates, and then you're awaiting the urine culture results. So we all know the title of this episode, but is this case a UTI or a pyelonephritis? Well, that's technically a trick question because pyelonephritis is infection of the kidney, which is technically part of your urinary tract. So basically all pylos are urinary tract infections, but not all UTIs are a pylo. Generally, when people talk about a UTI, though, they're talking about uncomplicated cystitis, which is just infection of the bladder and doesn't involve the upper system like the ureters and the kidneys. Yep, you got me there. Yep. (laughs) You can diagnose pyelonephritis on imaging, but we don't routinely image everyone. And most people will treat a febrile UTI in a kid who's under the age of two as pyelonephritis. And that's because they actually have systemic symptoms. You also can't reliably use inflammatory markers to differentiate between cystitis or pyelonephritis. So really not that helpful there. Yeah, and to make things even more complicated, you can have what's called complicated UTIs, which can include things like UTIs in newborns, UTIs that have renal abscess, anyone with a urinary tract anomaly with the UTI, sepsis due to a UTI, which is also known as urosepsis, UTIs that are caused by organisms other than E. coli, or UTIs that don't get better within 72 hours. Yeah, most UTIs are due to an ascending infection from your urethra, since you actually have bacteria like naturally all over your skin. But you can also have hematogenous spread, meaning through the blood, in some patients, like if they're immunocompromised. And usually those type of bacteria um, will be staph, or you actually might even have fungal causes of a UTI. Yeah, and because most UTIs are due to normal GI flora, people with female anatomy are at higher risk for UTIs because of their shorter urethra, except in the first year of life, in which case boys actually have a higher risk than girls, so 3.7% compared to 2%. Uncircumcised boys also have a slightly higher risk, and other risk factors include congenital abnormalities of the urinary tract, such as vesculourotoral reflux, or VUR, and frequent instrumentation, such as catheterizations or Foley's. So that kind of history, um, including other things that should raise your suspicion for UTI are things like constipation and recent antibiotic use. Yeah, there's actually an online calculator that estimates the risk of UTIs in febrile infants who are aged um, two months to 23 months. Um, and it looks at risk factors based on age, female or uncircumcised males, a fever Tmax of 39 degrees Celsius, or no other source of fever. They did a study that looked at over 2,000 kids and found that this calculator reduced unnecessary testing, decreased missed UTIs, and actually reduced treatment delays. 
Yeah, it's actually super useful. I use this all the time for um, kiddos that come in through the ED. Yeah. So pop quiz, what is the most common cause of UTIs? That's easy. E. coli. <laughs> yes, that was easy. <laughs> but um, 85 to 90% of UTIs are due to it, which you might not have known. And uh, the real question is, why is E. coli such a common cause of UTIs? Um, <laughs> no idea. Yeah, so I didn't know this either, but when I was reading up on it, E. coli actually have P. fimbri, which bind to epithelial cells, and they have lipopolysaccharides, which cause tissue inflammation. So um, they can just, I guess, really easily cause UTIs. <laughs> Other common bugs that you're going to see are Klebsiella, Proteus, Enterococcus, and Enterobacter. You might also less commonly see yeast, like I was talking about, which is candida. And then if you have someone who uses a Foley, they have a urinary tract congenital abnormality, or they've recently used antibiotics, you want to think about Pseudomonas, Group B strep, and Staph aureus. Okay, so now it's my turn to quiz you. What kind of symptoms would make you more concerned for a UTI? Well... Fever can be like the only symptom in a young kid, although some new neonates will actually present with hypothermia, um, and that's not unique to UTIs, it's any infection. Um, but classically, we kind of think of pain with peeing, meaning dysuria. You have urinary urgency, meaning you need to go to the bathroom really quickly, um, or you might have new incontinence. If you see that, though, you kind of want to think about new onset diabetes, especially if it's, it's a new nocturnal enuresis in an older kid. Um, other symptoms are urinary frequency, meaning going to the bathroom more often. And then on, on exam, you might see abdominal pain or flank pain, which is CVA tenderness on exam. Other exam findings that you might see are abdominal or bladder distension, or you might actually be able to palpate a stool ball or a mass since constipation is a risk factor um, for UTIs. Okay, so we think our patient has a UTI, and you're lucky in this case because the parents let you get an INO cath for their kid, but what would be other potential options for getting a urine sample? Say, let's say you have a little bit of an older patient. So I assume you're trying to get at like an older toilet trained kid. So you can get a midstream clean catch, which means that you clean the outer genital skin first, you have them pee a little bit, and then midstream, you get that sample. And so that's how you get a clean, sterile, as much as you can, urine sample. If it's an uncircumcised kid, you also need them to retract their foreskin to reduce any uh, skin flora contamination. But a lot of times you're going to see a kid who's like a one or two year old who's not toilet trained and you're worried about UTI, really then you need to get a catheterization sample. But obviously that's easier said than done. And so oftentimes we'll opt to get a bag specimen first to screen for UTI. And if that's concerning, then we get the catheterization sample. We can try to stimulate a spontaneous urination through suprapubic cold massages, and then you like catch the midstream urine, but really people don't have time to just be standing there and trying to catch a kid's urine. So um, many people don't do that. Um, yeah. And remember to never get a urine culture from a bag specimen. So even though it's a good starting point for some people, definitely don't get a culture from that. Um, and the reason being is that you can get contamination from the normal bacteria on the patient's skin. So you can't really trust those results. Think of contamination if there's 10 or more per higher power field of squamous epithelial cells on the urinalysis or two or more pathogens on the urine culture. Or alternatively, if you have non-uropathogens such as lactobacillus, cornibacterium, viridin streptococci, or coagulase-negative staph, such as staph epidermidis. 
Yeah, and the same actually goes for an indwelling Foley catheter. You never want to get a sample from that, really. Um, according to the CDC, nearly 100% of patients who have a urinary catheter will have bacteria after one month, which is pretty crazy. You can get a screening urinalysis initially from that old Foley, but if it looks dirty at all, you have to change the Foley and get a clean sample to send off for the urine culture. So we have symptoms that are concerning for UTI, and I know I talked about some of the findings on the urinalysis for our patient case that made us think about UTI, but what exactly is the diagnostic criteria, Tammy? Yeah, so what I know is there's three things. You have bacteria, meaning um, bacteria in your urine with a clinically relevant uropathogen, plus you need to have symptoms, so that can be fever, dysuria, all the other things we talked about, as well as having pyuria, so that means white blood cells in your urine. Notably, though, uh, pyuria can be absent in about 10% of cases of UTIs. Um, so it's kind of interesting that they include that in the definition. Um, other questions I kind of had was like, what defines bacteria? Is that like 10,000 or 20,000 bacteria? And then what defines pyuria? Great question. Um, bacteria generally means 50,000 colony-forming units, or CFUs, per milliliter if it's a calf specimen. 100,000 if it's a clean catch, and only 1,000 if it's suprapubic. So the threshold is different depending on how clean you get the sample. Some studies, though, have found that kids with lower colony counts still had true UTIs and even pyelonephritis. So if you have a high clinical suspicion, then you should still consider it even without meeting the full criteria. And then significant pyuria equals 10 or more white blood cells per cubic millimeter on an enhanced urinalysis or greater than or equal to five white blood cells per high power field on a centrifuge specimen of urine or any leukocyte esterase on a dipstick. Yeah, and that's actually a good point because we had a patient that um, had only 10,000 to 25,000 of citrobacter, um, but they had hematuria, dysuria, um, and they actually had flank pain. So we did treat it as the pyelonephritis. So earlier you mentioned the urinalysis was positive for leukocyte esterases, but also nitrates. So I just wanted to explain that a little further. Leukocyte esterases are more sensitive, but nitrates are more specific for UTIs. So if you remember biostats, that means if you don't have leukocyte esterases, you're less likely to have a UTI. Versus if you're positive for nitrites, you're more likely to have a UTI. Yikes, all this sensitivity specificity stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have this specific diagnostic criteria because there are other similar findings that shouldn't be treated as UTIs. Yeah, so just having symptoms but not having bacteria in your urine can be generalized irritation, which often happens in younger kids from bubble baths. So always like check if your parents are doing that. It can also be vaginitis or cervicitis in female adolescents. Yeah, and don't forget about STDs, especially in the teen population. Definitely. If you have asymptomatic bacteria, though, then that means you have colonization of the bladder with this bacteria. And this is pretty common in kids with neurogenic bladders who have frequent catheterizations. And it's why we don't tend to treat healthy kids with bacteria in their urine if they have no symptoms. And then if you have just leukocytes or white blood cells, but no bacteria in your urine, that's what we consider sterile pyuria. And that can happen in partially treated UTIs, but also in other infections like classically uh, appendicitis or Kawasaki, you'll think about sterile pyuria. Um, but something I learned was also tuberculosis and lupus can uh, have sterile pyuria. Interesting. Okay, so now say our patient grew 100,000 colony-forming units of E. coli on the in-and-out cast specimen. What does that mean? Ooh. 
Definitely a UTI <laughs> for sure. Um, so what's the treatment for that? Well, antibiotics, of course, but our patient's eight months old. He has a fever and his urine's consistent with the UTI. So we should really just treat him as a pyelonephritis since we don't know if he has kidney involvement or not. Um, if his kidneys are involved, it's really a more serious infection because that can lead to renal scarring, which eventually can lead to hypertension and chronic kidney disease. So really the treatment for that is a lot more broad and you treat longer if you're concerned for pyelonephritis. Yeah, so for a febrile UTI or a pylo, we give high-dose first-generation cephalosporin, so cephalexin or keflex, or Bactrin for 10 to 14 days. Some sources recommend a second or third-generation cephalosporin, but that doesn't have as great of a tissue penetration, so it's not usually routinely recommended. In contrast, if you have an uncomplicated cystitis, so like a UTI without fever, um, you can do a low-dose first-generation cephalosporin, so like cefazolin or keflex, which is better than Bactrim or nitroferentoin. And this is a shorter duration, so you usually do like 7 to 10 days if they're 0 to 2 months or 3 to 7 days for older children. The range in treatment duration really varies um, depending on like, what guidelines you look at. And there are some studies that show shorter treatment duration is comparable to the longer treatment durations for UTIs. Um, nevertheless, though, a study from January 2023, so very recently, did find that a 10-day course of antibiotics for UTI for kids two months to even 10 years had less failure rates than a five-day course. Notably, though, both of them had low rates of failure. So it's just something that I think we need to keep our eye on and keep researching. Great. And what about IV versus enteral oral antibiotics? Yeah, so good question. If someone's admitted for a severe UTI and you start them on IV antibiotics, there's really no strict duration of how long they need to be on these IV antibiotics and you can transition to oral once they're afebrile for 24 hours and they're tolerating PO. Okay, so let's talk about what to do after you have a UTI. Um, you really only need to get a renal ultrasound if it's a febrile UTI in 2 to 24 months of age or if there's a recurrent UTI at any age. We generally like to defer this until after the patient is recovered just to avoid any false positives due to edema, but you can obtain it during the illness course if the patient is very sick or if the fever kind of persists for more than 72 hours. You also only need to get a voiding cyst cystourethrogram, which I can never say, so I just say VCUG, um, to assess for vesicourethral reflux, again, VUR. And that's if the patient has an abnormal renal and bladder ultrasound, or they have a UTI by an atypical pathogen, or they have known renal scarring, or they had a complex clinical UTI course. And even if you are found to have VUR, surgical correction is reserved only for high-grade VUR, or those with recurrent UTIs despite antibiotic prophylaxis, or if there's worsening renal scarring. For those patients that do have VUR, antibiotic prophylaxis is recommended by the American Urological Association in children less than one year, typically with Bactrim. But then this decision becomes more selective after this age group based on several other factors. Yeah, so how do you counsel your patients to prevent UTIs? First, you want to avoid constipation or urine withholding. For girls, you always tell the parents to wipe or tell the patient to wipe from front to back so that you're not spreading the stool bacteria into your urethra. And then for uncircumcised boys, they should gently clean their foreskin regularly. Yeah, and you hear a lot about 
cranberry juice. Um, and that seems to be like a really popular kind of old wives tale, but there's actually not a whole lot of great evidence for it, especially in kids. So a 2012 review looking at 24 studies of adults didn't even find enough benefit to recommend it for UTIs and adults. So it's probably not actually that helpful. And although increasing fluid intake will flush bacteria out, there's really limited evidence on its effectiveness at preventing UTIs as well. Great. So that was a lot of really good info. So just to summarize, urinary tract infections are diagnosed based on at least 50,000 colony-forming units of bacteria, usually E. coli, in a catheter specimen, or 100,000 in a clean catch, white blood cells or leukosterase, and then symptoms, which may only be a fever in younger kids. A febrile UTI should raise some concern for pyelonephritis, which requires longer treatment, as do younger kids with non-febrile UTIs or simple cystitis. A renal ultrasound is indicated for any kid under two years old with a febrile UTI or a kid of any age with recurrent UTIs. That's all for this episode. You can find additional information in the podcast description and our social media resources. Please rate and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at PediagogyPod. That's P-E-D-I-A-G-O-G-Y-P-O-D. Special thanks to Orlando Magana at OM Audio Productions for music composition and Dr. Su Ting Lee and Dr. Lena Vanderlis for mentorship.